Summer sank away, and autumn, painfully Goldman struggled through the bitter months, wandered drunkenly through the sweet-smelling spring. Hastily the seasons fled. Again and again, high summer sun sank down. Years passed. Goldman seemed to have forgotten that there were other things on earth besides hunger and love, and this silent, eerie onrush of the seasons. He seemed completely drowned in the motherly, instinctive, basic world. But in his dreams or his thought-filled moments of rest, overlooking a flowering or wilting valley, he was all eyes, an artist. He longed desperately to halt the gracefully drifting nonsense of life with his mind and transform it into sense. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to The Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I'm Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Peachy. And I'm Soren Rearguard. Welcome back, listeners. Just a few items of business before we get started. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at The Reader's K. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Reader's Karamazov. You can shoot us an email with any questions you might have about uh, past or future episodes. We're at thereaderskaramazov at gmail.com. And you can uh, listen to the pod on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts these days. Do, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, leave us a review, rate us five stars. Every little bit helps. We're back this week. We wrapped up last time talking about uh, our anchor book for the season, Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose. If you haven't listened to those three episodes, I highly recommend you do so. They are bangers, all of them. We are moving uh, now into the second part of our season, our first iteration or cycle of books that connect back to The Name of the Rose. This cycle we're calling Monks, a very obvious connection back. And we're starting pretty close to the bone here um, with (laughs) Herman Hesse's Narcissus and Goldman, a book that is about medieval monks in medieval Europe, just like the name of the roses, we shifted a little bit north to Germany or the Holy Roman Empire, uh, but the setting is, you know, pretty similar to the name of the rose. We're going to start, as always, with a quick plot summary. So let me give that to you. Narcissus and Goldman is the story of two very different men who yet find themselves to be complementary. Narcissus, at the beginning of the story, is a novice monk in the monastery of Maria Bron. He is a teacher of other monks. And uh, into his tutelage comes the young Goldman who's been sort of left there by his father to become a monk. Narcissus realizes quite quickly that Goldman's not cut out for the monastery and that he's definitely not cut out for the intellectual life, but he sees something promising in him, something of the artist or the person who lives by his senses. And so he encourages Goldman, along with the kindly but sort of dull abbot, Father Daniel, to explore his life. Eventually, Goldman does in fact leave the monastery and he goes out and explores the world doing various things. He basically sleeps with every lonely housewife in the Holy Roman Empire. (laughs) He over time becomes a woodcarver and a drawer and an artist. He um, keeps wandering everywhere, becomes homeless. He he kills a couple of men. He uh, survives the Black Plague. And eventually by the end of the book, he's learned some lessons about life and art. He finds himself imprisoned in the castle of a count and uh, is rescued by Narcissus, who's now become the abbot of the abbey, who brings him back to Maria Braun, where Goldman completes a few wonderful sort of life projects of art for the the monastery and then um, eventually dies at the end of the book. 
so that's the story. It's it's uh, it's fairly simple in some ways, but there's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to toss it over really to both Friedrich and Carl. This is Friedrich's first pick of the season. So Friedrich, I want to know a little bit about why you chose this book for us, what drew you to it. But then also, Carl, um, between the two of you, you, maybe you can let our listeners know a little bit about Hermann Hesse more broadly. I have to admit, this is my first Hesse book I've ever read. Oh, wow. So I'm just oh, I'm sort of no. just estimating here uh, <laughs> as we go along what's going on, but you all can maybe fill us in for, for readers. I, I get the I mean, I don't, I know a little bit about Hesse. I get the sense this is a fairly atypical book in some ways, while maybe typical in other ways. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about, so, so maybe you can, you can fill us in a little bit on Hesse in general, but, but Friedrich, maybe you can start by just telling us what it was that drew you to this book and, and uh, why we're reading it for this season. Sure. Thanks for that uh, summary as well. It's great. This is one of those books that like I put on a online shopping wish list about a decade ago <laughs> and it just lay there for a long time and then uh, we were approaching the season and I thought I should read that so we were on dangerous ground reading a book that I, none of us had ever read before whereas often we come to these uh, having one of us at least saying I'm going to introduce this to you uh, to the other two and our re- listeners and I'm going to tell you why it's so great or we're all rereading it in the case of some of these um, and we're all excited about rereading them this one was a, a first time for all of us and I selected it because I was once a, a young man wandering myself in in parts unknown and like Carl can relate to that I know as well and I think every uh, like and you early... murdered a man <laughs> and Key that's plot point, by the way. that's why I was drawn to it yeah Carl's right on no but like like many young men in their early 20s who are somewhat bookish and reserved and are curious about the world and end up traveling, they think, I need to read some Hermann Hesse. And so I, uh, you know, explored around Siddhartha or, or Damien was a, a book that a friend introduced me to that I thought was great. And The Glass Bead Game. These are all books that have concerns about the sacred mysteries of knowledge and Gnosticism and that concern mentor-protege, male friendships and relationships and at a certain age, getting to Hesse can be really enlightening and interesting because he's a person who's introducing you to a sort of intellectual life that's dramatized, but also to new ways of thinking outside of maybe uh, whatever education you've had to that point. Um, and revisiting him in a decade later, a decade older, uh, this is, yeah, you're right, is both atypical and typical, this book, of his work and style. But I also think he's the type of person who you if you come to him at the right time, can be can be really great. Um, and so I'll be interested to hear how all of us coming to him now are responding to this book. Uh, Carl, I don't know what you thought differently or similarly. Yeah, Friedrich and I have traveled similar paths as wanderers to parts unknown um, in our lives. And I think we have a similar history with Hesse. And having read a few of these books, I'm somewhat drawn to these bantam paperback classics you, know, you can <laughs> stick them in your rucksack as you go traveling yeah. into the forest somewhere and it's kind of a good you know think piece to have you know as you're contemplating a dawn on a, some you know majestic overlook somewhere but i i do really like damien and siddhartha i i really liked that novel as an undergrad and i, I still really like it and the glass bead game too i think is gets at something quite interesting and what is the goal of a life of the mind how ought a life of the mind play out for someone who's very seriously engaged in the contemplative life and wants you know to produce some kind of work through that and how does one sort of obviate institutional politics or something if that's not what you're into to kind of make some lasting thought change in the way people think for generations to come or something or what does it look like to play an intellectual game well the glass bead game i think does that quite well and i'm very surprised that this is considered by some Narcissus and goldman to be his greatest book because i thought the book to me was a bit more of goldman and goldman (laughs) (laughs) and not Narcissus and goldman if that makes sense and we all have the same Bantam Classics cover, too, and it very much feels like literally Goldman is much larger than Narcissus and seems to be the focus. Surrounded and, by his harem. And yes, and surrounded by these beautiful women uh, literally swooning into him, into his figure. And then Narcissus is like this Voldemort figure on the side who... 
He looks like a dour Martin Luther. Yeah, and uglier and unable to know or see anything or you know amount to anything and the book ends kind of closer to that space in a way where in some of these other books there's a real Siddhartha has a golden mean meets middle way east meets west same with the glass bead game kind of has a the scholar and the critic um you know how how does one respond to one's times how does one respond to eternity I think there's a nice balance going on there but in this one I don't know if there's a balance. I don't I don't know what both of y'all made of it, but um I felt like we got a lot of apology in the sort of Socratic sense for wandering as opposed to structure. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, dichotomization going on in the book, but Yeah, I think maybe the the, the book structure is the the best place to start. And and you're absolutely right, yeah. Carl. Like the experience of reading this book was an odd one for me because I started out and I was like, okay, this is interesting. Like I really like this. And then Narcissus and Goldman are there together for the first 50 or 60 pages. And then Narcissus is just gone. It's a 300 page book. He's in the first roughly 60 pages, the last 30, and then he's just absent in the rest of the book. And so it really does feel like an, an odd choice to call it Narcissus and Goldman um, versus something like, I don't know, Goldman's horny quest or something, but (laughs) it's worth thinking about why is it still called Narcissus and Goldman? There's still Mm -hmm. a claim here that this is a book about two personalities. And the structure of the book does suggest that. It's almost like a, I don't know, you could think of it as a thesis, antithesis, synthesis structure Mm -hmm. or something like that. Because when they come back together at the end, it's like, you got peanut butter in my jelly, you got jelly in my peanut butter, right? <laughs> There's a something of a reconciliation going on between them in terms of the ways... That's some great metaphor. <laughs> Thank you. I'm on a roll tonight. So, so, so there's some sort of reconciliation that happens. But then, I, I mean, we are left with a question. Where is Narcissus in this book? And I, and I almost wonder if it's like the case maybe of a, some sort of structuring absence. Narcissus is supposed to be felt with us the entire time even though he's not there as a character i mean golden makes that claim at the end he says you are always with me basically but it doesn't necessarily feel that way as you're reading through it so i wonder what you all think about the structure here and why hessa chose to structure it this way does he really want us to place so much more emphasis on goldman or is it just he felt like the only way to approach it was this more indirect way when it came to narcissus or i mean what do you what do you all make of that I think his personal biography and kind of being a bit of a wanderer in a certain sense plays into this one more. And I can see someone who who knows a lot of Hess thinking that this is his best in the sense that it's his best attempt at kind of fictionalizing his biography. He has a few books that go into that. But you need on the, the plot level this structure that's quite personified or there throughout if you're going to have a kind of character who we stick with who breaks it and you know breaks it for some important reason and he clearly needs narcissus in a lot of ways i mean he literally saves his life at one point and he also gives his life the amount of structure it needs narcissus to goldman but then becomes a foil for the person who cannot understand the maternal which is a big kind of theme in a lot of hess or like a kind of deified maternity in some way and i think to me that was kind of one of the more interesting parts of the ending or of the book in general but i was a bit disappointed in hess who usually doesn't make it such a toppling duality where the one side clearly topples the other if that makes sense and a little bit more even i certainly could have what i would take to be narcissus's arguments against goldman at the end such as you know well you seem to have wasted a lot of your life. <laughs> um, there's there's wandering in a kind of spiritual sense or the way that thought wanders productively to find something, right? But Goldman ends pretty almost nihilistically and his life's work is not that of someone who was a genius but didn't produce enough but we still have this like great remnants of their art or something or you know like Kafka or whatever like everyone wishes Kafka had like three or four more books or something but you know Goldman doesn't strike me as that kind of figure he strikes me more as like a person who squandered a lot of things a lot of opportunities a lot of privileges a lot of talents and 
we end just kind of siding with him <laughs> in spite of all that over a person who really spent a lot of their life helping others, ordering a kind of spiritual life, spiritual community. There's plenty of things we could have ended looking at there, but Hess really pushes against it. Thinking from the place that we're in, Carl and I at least, I'll be interested to hear what Soren says, of maybe confusion compared to how you come away from something like Glass Bead Game, which is interesting because Glass Bead Game is so much about order and the creation of sort of intricate orders, right? And then being cast out from that and finding other ways to, to think and produce intellectual work, but ultimately still returning to some sort of order, whereas this is about like a rejection of that. And thinking of this book as like, why is it popular? Why is it interesting to readers of Hesse compared to those other books? A part of what's interesting to me as from what you're saying, Carl, is that it's about a figure, Hesse, Renton too, into his intellectual side and his wandering side, kind of reckoning with his work as an artist, um, because Goldman becomes an artist for a time under Master Niklaus um, and carves wood. And uh, when he returns to the Abbey, it's under the protection of Narcissus to produce more artworks for the Abbey, including like a beautiful pulpit. And even though he does all of this by the end, he's sort of like, what would be the point of continuing to to churn out beautiful woodwork? And he sees like a sort of absence of value in even that. And I agree with you that it, there's this nihilistic edge to it. And then there's the other, I don't know, there's this hypersensual side. Obviously, that's his whole character of like, what else is there other than these experiences that I've done? And Narcissus, you've compiled knowledge, you've compiled these things, but what does it amount to? And I think that that feeling that has a, puts into the book of like, really, what am I doing here? Makes it compelling, even if as a whole, we're still kind of wondering that how does it come together or are we frustrated by how it comes together? One of the things that stuck out to me in terms of the contrast of the book, I want to get away from being too negative about this book because I think there's a lot of really interesting things going on. There is that sort of, I find kind of hokey contrast with like the kind of the eternal feminine, the eternal mother versus the masculine represented by Narcissus. And to me, that feels very, I mean, it feels very 1930s. It feels like that absolute idiot, Joseph Campbell and all of his crap. Um, oh, sorry, oh, throwing oh. down some hot takes here. But um, that, that, that part felt hokey to me. But then I thought about one of the ways that was productive for me to think through the contrast going on in this book. Um, is hearkening back to a, another German um, from you know 50 years before, which is Nietzsche's you know contrast in the birth of tragedy between the Apollinean and the Dionysian modes of life, which I know classicists hate Nietzsche for, but uh, whatever, <laughs> it's good in its in its own way. With this form of like a- Apollo being the rational order, life of the mind, and then Dionysus being the life of the senses and being sort of the wildness of drunkenness and debauchery and the the artistic expression that comes through wildness, whereas Apollo is the artistic expression that comes through rationality and order and control. And that struck me as a a productive way of maybe thinking about the artistic productions going on in this book or the productions of things of lasting value, because we have on the one hand, Goldman's work as an artist, which is, as as you kind of point out, pretty small, but apparently very beautiful and, and striking in its way. And then we also have Narcissus's intellectual work. He's, you know, maybe like a scholastic or something. We don't get an exact definition of what it is he's doing as he's thinking through things, but he's some sort of medieval scholar making progress in the life of the mind um, in, a, in a very ordered way. And, and they have this conversation near the end, and he says to Goldman, you've never been able to think in abstractness. You can only think in images. And I can think abstractly, like mathematics and things like that. And he says, like, we need each other. We have this need for each other, this need to balance each other. Like Nietzsche, though, he seems to come down here on the side of the Dionysian, right, versus the Apollinian. He, he seems to think that there's a, an overcoming of the rational order that needs to take place. And, and I think in part that, that, that ties into the idea that in the end it seems like Goldman's, I don't want to call it nihilism necessarily, but despair about the, you know, there being any real order in the world. Um, he doesn't believe in an afterlife anymore. He doesn't believe in the goodness and order of the world. That, that seems to necessitate a sort of anti-orderness, whereas Narcissus, who does say he's plumbed the depths of doubt, maybe in a more profound way even than Goldman has, still has that order to fall back on. So I'm wondering what you all think about 
those ideas of sort of chaos and order as it relates to artistic or intellectual production and how that happens in the book. And there's that point when they're talking about art in the um, prison cell, right? Where Narcissus is revealed as the abbot. And um, he says something like, well, you don't think in ideals, ideas, right? Um, You think in specifics and images and experiences, like you were saying, Soren. And then he goes, well, who were you sculpting when you sculpted that? And Goldman says, well, I was sculpting not just this specific person, but something else behind that, like the idea of the person. And then Narcissus is like, ah, see, now you're in the realm of the idea. And that's where I come in. He's like attempting to tell him like, your artwork is actually striving after something else, like some sort of Robert Browning question about whether you're painting the soul or the flesh or something like that. But there are a couple moments that relate back to the name of the rose that stood out to me that maybe help us in this inquiry. And I'm thinking of, you know, that feeling Adso has of recognizing the same woman type behind the Madonna and behind the Whore of Babylon in the book. That here, Goldman's whole search is about finding all these varieties of women and all the different ways they express tiny little things about themselves during sex mostly or during childbirth or when that it, when their attacker has been murdered and they get to witness that <laughs> these these moments of ecstasy and pain he says right blending together that all of that's going on and narcissus at the beginning has said something about how he like william of baskerville searches for difference um, and all the monks are interested in difference and finding difference and uh, for Hesse, that iteration or the iteration of that for Goldman is like finding these differences in women, I guess, in some sort of way. Goldman mentions that he he recognizes like something about works of art that don't contain something and that are therefore fatal. And for him, that's mystery. There's like this searching after a type and a sort of master, like you were saying, idea of the essential woman in some way in his artwork uh, that he then explores through all these different real people. Well, it's interesting in the sense that he essentially works. You know, we've talked we talked in Name of the Rose about like induction versus deduction, yeah. that sort of thing. He's essentially his mode of operation is he has to experience all of these different things and then somehow make a composite out of them. So he's kind yeah. of building upward, whereas Narcissus is operating in this world of ideas, maybe that kind of starts from an ideal and works out from there. So he has to start. Mm-hmm. It's almost like. They're on opposite ends of Plato's ladder or something. And like Goldman's got to climb up the ladder and Narcissus is like already at the top and he's like working his way down or something, right? Like there's this sense of, I have to go out. The only way I can I can unlock the the eternal mother is like if I sleep with every single woman in the world and like figure out all the, I triangulate or, you know, octangulate, however many, you know, whatever, how many other sides, like what's a, what's a 3000 sided figure, right? Like what, and in the middle of that's going to be the, the mother, the eternal feminine. It's that mm-hmm. method of operation where it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a messy creation, right? Versus mm-hmm. having this sort of ideal conception and going from there, which is what Narcissus seems to, to be able to do. But both of them pursuing, like, it has to be, like, the thing. It has to be a purity and a pure expression of something. And if it's not that, then the work of art is fatal and it's bad. Mm -hmm. If it's not the expression of your inmost feeling or idea, depending on which one you're talking about, then for for Goldman, at least, he says it's a failure. Yeah, I mean, to answer your question, Soren, I'm thinking of this moment on page 291 in my edition where... I'm really disappointed in those sort of um, polyphony, um, like the Bakhtin's polyphony or whatever, of giving, you know, uh, writerly equality to both kinds of sides. If this is supposed to be some dyad, we have Goldman saying, I don't know, Narcissus, but in overcoming life and resisting despair, you thinkers and theologians seem to succeed better. I've long since stopped envying you for your learning, dear friend, but I do envy your calm, your detachment, your peace. And this is where Hess, someone who knows Eastern and Western religious traditions, I would expect him to give um, Narcissus a lot of stuff that Goldman just can't tap into here. And Narcissus says, um, you know, no, you should not envy me, Goldman. There is no peace of the sort you imagine. (laughs) There is peace, of course, but not anything that lives within us constantly and never leaves us. There's only the peace that must be won again and again each new day of our lives. You don't see me fight. You don't see, you don't know my struggles as Abbott, my struggles in the prayer cell. 
a good thing that you don't. You only see that I am less subject to moods than you, and you take that for peace. But my life is struggle. It is struggle and sacrifice like every decent life, like yours too. And he really lost me there. There's a, there's a truth to this that like a kind of transcendent everlasting peace or something is, you know, very difficult to attain in any spiritual life, right? But to say, you know, no, basically I don't have any calm, any detachment, any peace. And, and I'm like a learned, you know, impressive person in the life of the mind and constant spiritual devotion and I spent my life seeking that kind of calm and I never got anywhere with it (laughs) I was I was a bit displeased by that moment and I felt like narcissists could have had a lot more to say there with respect to calm detachment and peace and how one attains that by not seeking sensation after sensation and to Friedrich's point I think that's part of the point of this book is that we're trying to kind of weirdly spiritualize sensation qua sensation or something Mm -hmm. and it's that ethos in life that really gets all of the play in this book that's why Goldman's like approach is so valorized time and again he's willing to seek out another sensation again and again and again and in something like Buddhism, um, that's just waste, you know, that's only pain, that's only going to increase one's pain and suffering. And in other religions too, it it's could just be, you know, sin after sin, or into the slow of despond we go, uh, one more time into the breach, my friends, right? But I don't understand how that leads to this eternal feminine, I guess. Well, that to me also raises another question, which is, I felt a bit of whiplash coming to this book after reading Echo, because... Echo is so concerned, as we sort of talked about in the last episode, with setting up this perfect world that runs along the logic of the Middle Ages. And is this book really like a medieval book at all? Or is it just Tessa like writing what he wants to write and setting it in the Middle Ages for whatever reason he wants to? And, And there's advantages and disadvantages to both so i don't want to just knock it and say well it's not very accurate historically accurate right um like a dweeb but like there's something to it it's like at a certain point it would have been maybe a little bit of more of verisimilitude would have been nice in what's going on you know in terms of sure and, and and you know the risk there is that like and this is a risk for anybody who's interested in writing novels that are also novels of ideas and you know it's something we're obviously especially concerned with on this podcast but to what extent are you letting the ideas overpower the story itself and and i feel like there are times here where he really succeeds in making the story pop and then there are other times where it maybe feels like the, the thumbs a little bit too obviously on the scale in one way or another yeah i mean this is also a book that feels very like 60s male paperback which is what it is you know that's like where its audience was you know and it's not quite the scholar's sense of the middle ages in here like it is with echo right yeah i i don't have the sense in this of there being like a a lived-in world that hessa's returning to nor of period specific questions that need to be set in that time in order to be explored properly and I agree that, as Carl's saying, this book really found its English reading audience in the 1960s for reasons that seem obvious, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and to that, you know, at the beginning, there's this relationship between the two of the two main characters where Narcissus is looking at Goldman and saying like, oh, there's something about you specifically that I can tell is special. And there's some fate awaiting you that I can't really put my finger on because uh, I'm not a seer, but I know there's something waiting for you. And then much later in this moment that would convince all of us to be vegetarians when he's watching the fish fishmongers and fishwives and disgusted at how these common people could watch this beautiful fish turned into nothing but a thrashing animal before it's chopped up and fed to them. Goldman says, this is in free and direct discourse, these people saw nothing, knew nothing, and noticed nothing. Nothing touched them. A poor graceful animal could expire under their very eyes, or a master could express all the hope, nobility, and suffering, all the dark, tense anguish of human life in the statue of a saint with shudder-inducing tangibility. They saw nothing. Nothing moved them. That's I, I like this book, and I, but I have a problem with, like, there's this hyper-focus or hyper-pressure on 
the main characters being special and more special than everyone else around them, which I think Echo is so keen to emphasize how not one of these people in my book is actually having all the answers or better than or something like that, right? And this book, you know, it it rests with like, these two kind of are special. I don't know what either of you made of that. Yeah, there's a sense that, you know, one of the big themes of the book is this resistance to ordinary life. And that's, you see that in, of course, in Goldman's sort of peripatetic lifestyle. Mm -hmm. He never, he never settles down. No one can chain him. And he resists in in his master, Niklaus, the, the, the woodcarver, this sort of bourgeoisification of artistic talent because Niklaus can produce these stunning works of art, but then he's also happy to just like churn out crap so he can get paid and right and he's concerned about getting his daughter a good marriage and right he he's weighed down by these externals and goldman really resists that but i think there's an interesting counter current in the book maybe that's pushing back against that a little bit at least and i see it in two ways one is through the character of nicholas because as true as it is that when goldman sees him and and resists his influence because he's sort of after money and doing these different things it's also true that niklaus like actually produces art unlike goldman right as you said you know we keep coming back to this like goldman produces very little over the court and he always has to be like he's like oh can't work today i gotta go fly fishing or whatever he's like goes off and does something (laughs) and comes back and right he's kind of lazy right He, he has that sort of as many brilliant people are right he, he lacks that work ethic. And, and Niklaus, who's maybe less brilliant in, in terms of his mm-hmm. raw talent, has the work ethic to actually produce things. And so he's able to make mm-hmm. these wonderful works of art that last, that are going to touch other people, that can move even Goldman to sort of a state of wonder. And then the other person I see that in actually is Narcissus, in that he lives a life of order and lives it through to the end. And to the extent that he becomes the abbot and he inherits a position of responsibility and has to in fact give up maybe what he wants to be doing which is just pure speculation because he has to run the abbey and at the beginning of the book you know we have this character the the original abbot father daniel who is contrasted really with both of them both narcissus and goldman and he sort of has their number to an extent he's able to He's a simple man. He's not a thinker. He's not a feeler in the same way that Goldman is. But he's able to look at them and assess them and figure out what they need and say, well, okay, back off a little bit here. And they both really admire him for that. And so there's a sort of a something of a countercurrent in the book suggesting that special people, people who have a, a, an extra dose of talent or intellect or whatever it is, or even just sensitivity to the world, Maybe they're lacking something too, even though I I do agree that the book ultimately kind of comes down on Goldman's side. There's also a sense in which he's ill fit for the world and like he's not really Mm. good for much of anything. And I think the book recognizes that at least in some sense, even if it goes on to then like revalidate that because of his extreme talent or access to this mystical world or something like that. But there is this, there's, there's at least a tension in the book between those two things, right? The need for practical concerns versus the need for uninhibited freedom to be great. I'm trying really hard to get some sense of why Hess really valorizes Goldman over Narcissus in the same way that I feel like I get an understanding of the protagonist in his in his other works or the the duality that's in a lot of his other works um another book of his steppenwolf seems to be like if narcissus and goldman were one person torn between a life of extreme order for the sake of the pursuit of one goal in the realm of knowledge and then wildly abandoning that in all kinds of ways and i think i keep coming back to this great mother eve statue that he wanted to carve but kind of couldn't get to at the end and i guess one way to kind of read that might be that goldman is maybe perhaps supposed to be some kind of moses figure in the sense of like leading somewhere that he can't actually get to leading a thought tradition somewhere that he won't actually see himself but he had to be the person to 
lead the next person there, if that makes sense. I think in some way, maybe Hess is trying to show that a person willing to break all of the rules in a certain sense, you know, not in a way I would ever condone, but to push a lot of boundaries, escape a lot of social norms, refuse them all, and uphold something is worth, you know, a lot in terms of, you know, intellectual history or something in the same way that Jorge might have been in The Name of the Rose for the sake of pushing all of the ideas of a of a time in some new way, right? Or like splitting a river so that the ideas flow differently. There's something that Goldman is trying to do there with imagine like what a Saint Eve would be or something in this tradition that I'm kind of critiquing. And without a mother, one cannot love. Without a mother, one cannot die. I don't know. That's my best attempt to get somewhere with that. I think there's something that he's going for there. No, it makes sense. The ending to me, it you know, it has this beautiful moment, I think, where he's dying and he's feeling chest pain and he's saying, they're my mother's fingers reaching in from the afterlife grabbing onto my heart. That's what that feeling is. She has her fingers in my chest, he keeps saying, Goldman. And then he's talking about that sort of Eve mother statue. And he says to Narcissus, now see how strangely things have turned out. It is not my hands that shape and form her. It is her hands that shape and form me. Uh, as she's closing her death fingers around his heart and pulling him in and making him feel like no pain, that there's this sort of, not in any way that I would ever think about creating artwork, but there's this imagined rejection of you're creating lasting things, right, throughout this book. You're creating things that are going to survive. And there's sort of the realization at the end, in addition to maybe if we're saying this book falls on the side of Goldman more than Narcissus, there's also this toppling toward, like, you are shaped by your circumstances. You are shaped by your mother, who even if she's not there, you're shaped by her. And you can't really shape or fashion your whatever it is for Narcissus or Goldman, um, which again, we talk about how is this book nihilistic or not? There's a sense of resignation at least. I think that that's good. If we could move from maybe from mothers to fathers, one thing that I found very interesting and maybe the most sympathetic part of the book to me was the, the kind of core friendship between Narcissus and Goldman. we sort of pointed out one of the frustrating things is they don't spend very much time together, but I was thinking about it a lot you know, all three of us are teachers to some degree. And thinking about that, I mean, what starts literally as a teacher-student relationship between Narcissus and Goldman, but then there's that sort of charge that happens between them. And Hesse portrays it on Narcissus's end as something of an erotic charge, although it's, you know, it's kind of diffused. So I'm wondering what you make of the book's depiction of the maybe the idea of master and student or or teacher and student and how you know teachers maybe seek to in some sense reproduce themselves through their students but then also uh, not in a weird way uh, but then also um, the sense in which you know Narcissus maybe is a good teacher because he recognizes very explicitly like I can't make Goldman like me he has to be like Mm -hmm. Goldman how do I activate that and then sort of set him free and then a sense by the end right of a of a maybe an equality between them but certainly a friendship between them where they end up sort of balancing each other to some degree and of course obviously that's an open question to what degree that balance actually happens but I am interested in that vision of there's always a sense when you're teaching, especially when you have a student who you feel like is either especially bright or especially sort of sympathetic to your ideas, that you, you want to make some sort of impact on, on that student and have them sort of go forth and do things. And then, of course, there's the tension of, well, you don't want them to be exactly like you. And I imagine this is what, I haven't experienced this from the other end, but I imagine this like like having a dissertation student is like, certainly, right? We've all experienced that from the other end of things. But, right, you have the sense of, like, you want people to imitate you. There's, there's a naturalness to that, but then you also have to realize at what point they have to stop imitating you and do their own thing. I guess I'm thinking about it especially with regards to how a true friendship might bring people closer to 
something like the truth. It seems to be suggested here, right? I don't think Goldman becomes the best Goldman that he can without Narcissus, and, and certainly Narcissus thinks that the reverse is true as well. And so how is it that like a student and a teacher might form some sort of intellectual friendship that then spurs them both forward toward a greater understanding of the world? The part of this relationship that you're drawing us to, Soren, that's really interesting to me is the, the inside and outside of orthodoxy part of it, uh, which we can debate whether such things exist when dissertations are being written. But the fact that they remain friends in spite of clear disagreements and transgressions on the other person's behalf with respect to the original person's like core beliefs is pretty interesting and that those deep divisions in thought and life can be complementary and not antagonistic in a friendship and in like the mental progress somebody makes or spiritual progress or however you want to think about it um, is really interesting too and I think that is one of the better parts of the book maybe that is to go back to one of your earlier questions though not these two good ones um that's why it's Narcissus and Goldman, right? Each is needing the other for something pretty essential in their development and in their sort of wholeness of who they are. In the uh, first 60 pages, yeah, we have the sense that this book could be one thing. As you've both sort of said, it could be a sort of familiar book about a mentor and a protege at odds, certainly, uh, yeah, with mutual respect um, and their raucous adventures in the abbey um, and instead we get goldman wandering for most of it and you know sort of what you were talking about with, with people who you once taught becoming friends in some way to, to me this book it changes from a book about a hierarchical relationship to one that's about sort of a weird friendship uh, where the two of them are totally almost mutually unintelligible as far as what they believe and think and yet they're just they rest on that familiarity and are comfortable with it. There's just like this sense of knowing one another that at the end, all these things that Narcissus thinks he understands about Goldman or that he thinks a person would do with Goldman's sensibilities, like become an artist or settle down in the Abbey in some uh, familiar form. He doesn't really do any of that. And indeed, even as he's getting old and gray, he continues to wander and leaves the Abbey for several more years and comes back and has pretty much renounced even creating artworks and he's as far away from no ability in some ways as Narcissus could imagine. And yet they still have just, I don't know, this sense of like, we're, we're near each other on some level. And that, I don't know, that friendship, as weird as it might sound, rings true to me that there's just this <laughs> clicking that happens between them. <laughs> and as far apart as they might get, it doesn't go away. I don't know if you had that sense. It reminds me a little bit of this podcast. <laughs> We've the three of us have become an increasingly antagonistic. <laughs> no, that's not. True. Carl is clearly narcissus. Uh, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa! I think I'm Abbot Daniel, so I guess that means you're you're Goldman Friedrich. You're Friedrich. Oh, I would like to be Master Nicklaus okay. or something like that. <laughs> yeah, he is my favorite character. It also, I don't know why this this is this is. I want to be Siddhartha, okay? okay? I want to be imported from a different book. <laughs> well, let's wrap it up for for now um, with, with those thoughts. Thanks for sticking with us, friends. I know this was a, maybe an atypical, but also typical episode for us, um, dealing with a book that maybe all three of us were a little bit unsure about to, to some degree, but I think there's still some good ideas to be dug out of there and, and talked about. Um, we will wrap up for now. However, stick around. At the end of the episode, we have finally the glorious return of postmodern food factory a little bonus content for you what i think we're going to call the crap sampler uh as we go through <laughs> several different disgusting foods for your pleasure and our torture so we will we will uh hit that up after cat keyboard uh, but stay tuned next time we will be talking about my first pick of the season 
uh, Walter M. Miller Jr.'s A Canticle for Leibowitz, a very different set of monks in a very different sort of situation. Um, this is a sci-fi book. Uh, it's a wonderful book, uh, another classic, a sort of mid-century, another, at least in my edition, classic, weird paperback cover. So we'll get to that as well. But uh, we'll, we'll pick that up next time. Until then, we'll let Cat Keyboard play us out. Welcome to Postmodern Food Factory. And we're back, friends, with the very first Postmodern Food Factory of Season 3. It's been a long time, friends, and we're glad to be back. Uh, it's been so long that we have just too many delicious things stored up. And so uh, <laughs> what we're going with today is what, what I'm going to call a bit of a, a crap sampler. Um, we have four different items being sampled today. Unrelated other than that I was wandering around in the store and saw all of them and thought, these are terrible, let's try them on air. Uh, and uh, the others gamely said yes after some um, some searching and finagling. So um, I'm going to run through them one by one. We're mixing, as a sort of surf and turf uh, tonight, we're mixing a drink with three snacks, salty snacks. Um, our drink is the Nitro Pepsi. Uh, it is the plain variety. Uh, um, there are two varieties, I believe. There's a vanilla and a plain. We're trying the plain tonight. Uh, this is like a um, like a Guinness or something like that, where where you pour it upside down and it gets really foamy and there's a lot of head and things like that. So we're trying that. Um, we are trying. It has smaller bubbles and smoother taste Ooh. as the can. So okay, good. Smaller <laughs> bubbles. Okay, I love that. Um, we are gonna try the. Uh, Flaming Hot Sweet Carolina Reaper Cheetos, which might make us Big. die on air. Yeah. <laughs> we're like I'm a really worried. like a snuff film here. And then um, for our actually delightfully postmodern flair here, our, the most postmodern two things of the night, we have on the one hand a what I can only describe as a meat stick. Um, it is a Takis inspired meat stick. Uh, so it's like a Slim Jim, but it's been inspired by the taste of the um, Chip Sensation Takis. Uh, mm. Hot chili pepper and lime flavored meat stick. Oh, God. So uh, <laughs> we are not going to be recording the after session of us <laughs> spitting these out of our bodies. Poop emoji. Uh, and finally, we have the Smart Food branded limited flavor Doritos nacho cheese flavored popcorn. Uh, so both of those last two items really living up to the postmodern mm-hmm. food factory mm-hmm. billing where they are foods. Doritos smart food. <laughs> disguised. <laughs> the wonders never cease. Foods disguised <laughs> as other foods is sort of our, our bag here. So we're going to reach deep into that bag tonight with four different things. Oh, boys, where do you want to start? I want to start with the pouring of the Pepsi okay. so that it's ready. Because yeah, I feel I like ev- with every bite of this, I'm going to need you're a gonna drink. You're going to need some. Maybe it's going to be a bad drink. Nitro. A refreshing drink of Pepsi. PepsiCo, if you're listening. Hey, this is the drink of our generation. <laughs> All right, we, we're popping this. Oh, listen to that. Oh, my goodness. Mm. All right. Whoa, Pour hard. Sorry, it was Pour spilling hard. out. I was going to die. Look at that. It's like I'm in Ireland. <laughs> I got nothing. There's. You got no head? Did you do the What pouring? happened? <laughs> Did you do it right you upside down? Straight Carl? upside down? Yeah. Didn't you watch me? 
It's oh my god. Mine is uh, mine is in an, can. an opaque plastic cup, but I can tell from <laughs> you can see here. It's like a sunrise here. Um, in my this is just cup. a normal Pepsi to me. <laughs> it's like a bad Ooh. Chuck Norris joke. Nitro Pepsi is just normal <laughs> Pepsi to him. Um, all right, we're gonna try this. Sure. Friedrich and I have a satisfactory amount of head on our Nitro Pepsi. Carl, Gosh, sorry, got nitro dysfunction sorry, over here. Ooh, those right. smaller bubbles. It's like a Coke <laughs> float minus the ice cream. <laughs> I mean, it, it tastes I'm to me like so a flat Pepsi. Basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you like flat Pepsi? <laughs> I mean, get nitro Pepsi. Shouldn't say cola about it, but. <laughs> I just. I don't understand who this is for. 62 grams of sugar in this baby. Oh. It is a tall can, to be fair. But, um, yeah, I don't understand. Like, if I'm going to drink a soda, which I almost never do these days, yeah, I want the sensation want of feeling like my throat is being flame-torched by the bubbles. That's the joy of seltzer, right? Absolutely. And why seltzer is replacing soda, because you want that. And also, it makes sense why nitro is popular with people who drink cold brew or, like, dark beers. Mm-hmm. I guess. I don't really like nitro, but, like, why Pepsi? Okay, you what know what it's reminding me of? Table? I like your Coke float without without the ice cream. I think that's good, Friedrich. It's reminding me of a melted slushy, Like, the Coke yeah. slushies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just so much sugar, I can't even drink it. And I like sugary things. Well, maybe it'll benefit from being paired with things. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Are you? I'm assuming because this is a, a podcast of taste and discernment that you gentlemen are Coke fellows and not Pepsi fellows in gen- as a general. Of course, yeah. okay, of course. Go ahead. Good. I went to a bar once and they were like, "I was like, can I get a, a Jack and Coke or something?" And uh, they were like, "We only have Pepsi." Oh. And I was like, "I was like, you <laughs> only mix Pepsi into drinks?" <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah." And I was like. That's wrong. That's, that's very wrong. <laughs> that's that's not that's not good. All right, should we uh, should we move on to a pairing here? What do you all want to try first from from our snack goodie bin? Ooh. I'm thinking popcorn first. All right, yeah, warm up, start light, a moose and a moose bouche. <laughs> and maybe it'll be the least offensive. At least it seems like the least offensive it's of the three. smartest. Uh. Of our <laughs> I'm now opening my container. Which Smells like one of those tripartite Christmas popcorn tins. Oh, that's my jam. Ooh, did you ever get the Ooh, yeah. chocolate one? Ooh. Oh yeah. Okay, are you, are you are you getting ahead there, Carl? You're already like munching down here. Sorry, I opened. I'm it jumping ahead too since Carl's going for it. It's pretty good. <laughs> it tastes I like make an honest. Tastes like straight up barf. I have to make an honor confession right here. I am afraid of popcorn. (laughs) And I haven't eaten popcorn in 10 years. This is the first popcorn I've eaten in over 10 years. Why? I'll tell you why. When I was an undergrad, my friend, one day, all of a sudden he seems fine. He seems normal. It's a little bit of a hot day, and we maybe thought this was why. He just passed out, and we could not revive him. It was very scary. No uh, beverages with alcohol in them were being consumed, uh, and we took him to the hospital. Turns out he had an abscess in his mouth Ooh. filled with, like, um, infected in some way to the point that he like wasn't breathing properly and he needed to get it like drained of like pus and fluid and things and why did he have this because a popcorn kernel had wedged its way all the way up and up and up into his gums over many days because flossing he tried to get it out and he just like wrenched it really far in there so that popcorn seed did some real damage. It was like horror hour, and, Carl. And since then, I have not. You've literally popcorn. never had popcorn since then. 
it's just not my thing, you know? Mm. So I was kind of like, I'll just never eat that again. That was freaky. Wow. You're a brave man. <laughs> it's very Carl to you to be like, this thing happened to someone, therefore I will never again do X. <laughs> I love it. So I got to say, my first popcorn in a decade. That's crazy. Smart Food Doritos popcorn is pretty good. No. I'm still <laughs> the eating it. The problem with it though. is that... Sh- my, me too, but my problem with it, though, is that cheese popcorn, cheese-dusted popcorn exists in its ideal form already, and Absolutely. this is just a bad, or, a bad version of it, yeah. it's, or it's like, it has like, remember last season we ate the Red Hot Riplets covered um, mm-hmm. caramel apples mm-hmm. that had a barf taste? Mm-hmm. This has that same heat, the barf heat, mm-hmm. that's not, or the, I just finished barfing <laughs> and I'm a child heat, it's not good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. To return to my horror show, the only reason I'm eating this is because I'm going to the dentist soon, so they'll be able to check anything. There's, there's <laughs> you should tell them that story journal. and then be like, can you check for an well, I've told many dentists that story. <laughs> 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 it's a classic, classic Carl quote. <laughs> oh, okay, let's move on, gentlemen. Um, shall we... I, I'm assuming I let's to... ascend the heat scale here, or yeah, yeah? yeah, yeah okay. So yeah. let's do the Takis. Exactly what I was going to say. Meat stick here. We're Takis. Well, here's a question for our, our audience and for Soren. Is more you know you're more associated in my mind with Southern states than Northern states. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> so you you have more experience with Takis than us, I assume. I actually don't have tons As of a food Taki product? experience, but I have a little bit. Yeah. Where okay. is the original Takis zone? Where like people I associate know of it with like, Texas, but I don't know. Really? Yeah, yeah maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. They're distributed by oh, uh, the this pungent place aroma of meat sticks upon opening. This does not smell right. It smells like. <laughs> I have a story to tell you give all about another, Slim Jim's. Give us another way. metaphor of what it smells like, please. It smells terrible. <laughs> It smells like a it smells like a like a dog treat basically, <laughs> which I guess is what all meat sticks are, right? It's essentially just a dog a dog this treat. Is a dog treat. <laughs> are we trying? Does to have a little um, fresh oxygen absorber inside the package? Oh, yeah, inside. Yeah. I can't tell. You got a desiccant in there. Do not eat that. We trying this. Do y'all eat on, when you eat a meat stick? Do you eat the end? Yeah, yeah. You, like the, the the the. What do you mean? Do you the eat tip? the oh, end? Mine's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's not a cigar, man. Wait. It's wait not a like minute. It's bound with metal like a sausage. Wait a minute. You all have a different meat stick than I do, I think. No. <laughs> look at mine. Look at mine. Oh, you. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> hey, hey, just because yours is bigger, okay? You don't have to. Mine's long and you know. floppy, and yours is thin and. I mean, like small, but, but more rotund. Okay. It's well, not about the size of the meat stick. Yeah, you got like the individual wrapped Slim Jim. Yeah, okay. and all you right. all got like some sort of... Okay, so hopefully they taste the same. I don't know. Value pack. I'm biting him. Oh, it's bad. That lime really throws things off. No meat was harmed in the production of this Taki's meat stick. <laughs> Does yours have a very off-putting texture? I was just gonna say the texture <laughs> it's is not good. It's, it's like, like pulled pork. Hard. <laughs> yeah, that's actually so right. It's like if a tootsie roll was made of meat. Okay, I can't finish this. It's too bad. It's like if pulled pork came in weird little casing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. I kind of like it actually. While you're eating your meat sticks, I'm gonna tell you a story. Um. So I grew up, you know, my the second part of my childhood. I spent in a smallish town in Florida, um, nothing to do. And so my friends and I would make up weird things to eat and then eat them. So the <laughs> the number one grossest <laughs> thing I've ever eaten in my life, um, that's probably not true, but was um, what we called pigs in a blanket. And it was, <laughs> it was a Slim Jim, take a Slim Jim, and you wrap around it a circus peanut. <laughs> and then you eat it. The worst thing I've ever e- I eaten in my life. I actually kind of like circus peanuts. in elementary school who like everyone dared to eat stuff and you just did it. 
Okay. How did you wrap the circus peanut? Just you just sort of like it was it was stupid in terms of its distribution because of course like the Slim Jim Jim is long and thin, and then the circus peanut's like fat and squat. So you just kind of wrap it around one part here. Like you break off a piece of the Slim Jim and you like wrap it around. Him. Disgusting. Oh, I cannot. I can't finish. Actually, I'm going to take one more bite. I finished my because ours are shorter, but they're not, they're not good. Um, oh, the citrus just throws it off to me, um, and the textures. Mm. Is, the textures was doing it for the me. Part. It's by far the best thing I've eaten tonight. Very sawdusty <laughs> to me. Oh, Definitely. I'm going to need another swig of this refreshing nitro Pepsi. It's the it's the scrapings off the abattoir floor, you know. They throw those into the Takis Slim Jim My nitro casing. Pepsi had no froth to it. My Taki sticks are significantly shorter. <laughs> Such a beta. <laughs> All right. Gentlemen, seasonings don't fear the reaper. Oh, God. Do you? Do you? Are you ready to try this? These friends are the Cheetos Flamin' Hot Sweet Carolina Reaper. You like flaming hot Cheetos? Oh, oh I love flaming hot Cheetos. I'm a big flaming hot. They're great. Yeah. They're great. Me too. Yeah. Crunchy or puffs? Um, I'm a crunchy man, generally speaking. Although I've discovered later in life that I really enjoy, um, taking puffs and then like sucking all the air out of them in my mouth. I mean, like compacting them. <laughs> and then wrapping it in a circus peanut. Carl, I have a popcorn kernel <laughs> stuck in my mouth now, and I'm. Gonna not sleep tonight. Yeah. Are you worried? You're not gonna make it through the night. All right. I'm afraid. Like, are you are we like? Are we like this one chip challenge? People where we need like black, like latex gloves on to touch these things. Ooh, good question. Oh my gosh. They smell oh. like something. I can't put my finger on it. They smell like dirty baby shoes. <laughs> yeah. Never worn. Okay, are we doing this? Are we going to dive in? I'm like going to try to not touch one of my fingers. Gosh, Carl. Carl once had knew a guy who touched a Cheeto that was too hot. He went to the doctor and he said, we have to amputate. Ever since, he hasn't had a flaming Hot Cheeto. All right. Are we going for it? Yeah. Are you doing one or are you going to do like shove a bunch in your mouth at once? Or you gonna... I'm going to start I'm with one. Okay. one. Listeners, Carl is in fact like trying to get it out with his mouth. Out of the bag. He succeeded. Not that hot. Wait for it. I'm waiting. What's the hottest thing you've ever eaten? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. There was this uh, dive bar where I went to college that had um, super spicy wings, buffalo wings, um, and they kept jacking the highest level up because people would like treat it like a competition. Um, and I once had one of those, and I I am not a big spice guy, so I I, I had to tap out right away. But one of my friends was like, "I'm gonna eat the whole plate because then he gets picture put up behind the bar or something like that." And I ran across the street after finishing to the 7-Eleven and ripped open the fridge and started chugging the two liters of milk that they sold there. Or the gallons of milk, I should say. <laughs> two liters. I'm in, the, I'm in the crap zone here, the crap food zone, thinking of two liters. Um, just straight out of the cooler because it was so spicy. So that would, I guess that was the spiciest for me. Who was the one running across the street? You? No, not me. Or not you. Just, just a friend. Just a friend. These aren't that bad. I, I oh, like I'm, I'm into these. These are redeeming the night here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these are really good. Because we're at the highest level of corporate food creation. Cheetos, free to right. free life. Oh, they're like, innovators in the okay. field. Yeah, they're not going to produce a bad Cheeto. And this is clearly marketed to people who are like, I love spicy things, but these aren't... I don't know. I'm not really getting... I mean, there's a decent amount of heat, but... Like, I, I feel like this is the hottest Cheeto I've ever had. Yeah. 
for sure. <laughs> on the Cheetos guy. I'm a, I could have eat these. I've thrown caution to the wind and started touching it with my actual fingers. <laughs> I once, when I was like 14 or something, went to um, a Chinese restaurant with my family, and I ordered something with like one chili pepper mm. behind its like name, mm-hmm. thinking like, oh, I'll you know be a little adventurous. I was so sick from having like one pepper. I don't know what pepper it was, but it was very hot. I just went into the bathroom and like sat on the ground and just like had people keep bringing me water or whatever and then I came back and my family was just laughing at me like you are a big wuss and everybody else who tried it had the same experience they were just like out totally taken out by it I gotta say the quality of the heat is nice because it's like that um, I don't know what you think of Oh, wait hold on Sword just got a hit a Pepsi with the, <laughs> the pairing here. Did that really? It did not. Uh, it did not the extinguish the, the heat. It like kicked it up a notch. Oh, I see what you mean. It's the smaller effect of the smaller bubbles. <laughs> I like the heat of these because it has. I don't know if you feel this way about different peppers and heats, spices and food, but like it has that sort of like straight line, narrow spiciness mm-hmm. that it just kind of spreads over your tongue and goes away for me mm-hmm. yeah it's not like a heavy burning that's just hits you or something like that it's mm-hmm. lighter yeah i don't know what you mean but it's it's there yeah it doesn't build or linger no mm-hmm. no well <laughs> we ready to rate this <coughs> oh yeah carl what say you? The popcorn. I don't know why I even tried any popcorn. <laughs> yeah, if it's okay, I guess. I liked it, but for many reasons, I will not have any more. Um, the Takis pulled pork stick. <laughs> I kind of liked. <laughs> I'm gonna rate that high. I don't know. I'm going to rate that like a six out of ten. <laughs> six and a half. And the Flamin' Hot Carolina Reaper, I think I'll have that again. You know, like I'll eat some more from this bag. It's pretty good. Yeah. It's like an eight. Friedrich, thoughts? Um, well, as far as a novelty of the spirit of post- Pepsi, Pepsi's of- awful. Yeah. Sorry. A fr- good conclusion <laughs> of Pepsi. As far as the novelty element of Pomo Fact that we, we chase, you know, we're always chasing that novelty. Um, Taki's meat sticks are high because they're just a bizarre creation. Um, but they also are disgusting. And the texture is so off-putting that they're at the bottom for me. Um, and then after that, I think the next step up is the popcorn because it's, um, it's pretty barf-tastic. I uh, don't like it at all. Pepsi above that because it's just still Pepsi. It just is like totally unremarkable. And then way past all those pulling in my, I don't know, gold plated anthropomorphized cheetah award at Chester cheetah here, um, are the Carolina Reaper flame and hot and sweet Cheetos. I think they're pretty good. I would, I'd return to these again. Yeah. I was, um, pretty solidly for the, through the first three items. I was, I think stuck at like an Applebee's, but then they, <laughs> The sweet Carolina heat pulled it up to at least like a TGI Friday situation. So at least, yeah, Ooh. it's good. Maybe a Chili's two <laughs> at the airport. <laughs> Chili's two go. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, that's gonna do it for us uh, in this week's postmodern food factory. Uh, tune in to our next episode. Keep listening. You'll never know when another one of these is gonna pop up and ruin your night. So, good night, everybody. This has been another episode of Postmodern Food.